thought a lot about this message and been wanting to come to this particular passage of Scripture to share some things here today with you that I think will be of a great help and a benefit in your journey as you get to know the, the Bible more and get to know the God of the Bible. Notice, if you will, please, Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read just a few verses beginning in verse number 17. The first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 17. Notice if you have a red letter edition Bible, at least uh, the two pages that I'm on here, all red letters. This is all the words of Jesus. So this is actually Jesus' words, and he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to preach on this subject this morning, Jesus's view of the Bible. Jesus's view of the Bible. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for allowing us these moments to come and to hear from thy word. Oh, God, help us to be still. Help us to put aside the things of this world that may want to draw our attention away from the scriptures and help us to heed what is said and to follow you. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I believe it was the year 2006. I had the wonderful privilege to traveled to the Philippines and to actually preach for a missionary that was there about six hours north of the capital of Manila in a city called La Trinidad, just outside of Baguio City, which was a summer capital of the Philippines. It was a beautiful time. I spent uh, most of the week there leading up to Sunday. It was actually the one-year anniversary for this pastor, Mark Paul Maney, and his church that he had planted there in La Trinidad. And boy, I was excited to be there. It was a wonderful opportunity. And he explained to me that he had two services that were going to be going on that morning. And so that morning, right outside the back, there were all these chairs set up. And they had sent all these jeepneys out. If you're familiar with a jeepney, they had used those as kind of picking people up. And so they had a number of people there for the first service. I preached that first service. And every person that came that was a visitor received a Bible. And boy, it was a thrill to not only see some of the church people that were there, but a number of visitors that had come in had received their Bible. That first service, we had a few people that had placed their faith in Christ, and boy, we rejoiced, and we're looking forward to the second service. Before the second service began, I went and sat on the back row of all of those white plastic chairs, and I was just praying and meditating, and there was a man sitting in front of me 
reading a Bible that he had just been given. It was apparent that he was a first-time visitor. And I leaned over and I said, sir, I said, are you visiting today? He said, I am. I said, I see. I said, I see that you've received the Bible today. He looked at me and he just paused for a moment. He said, I'm 43 years old. I've never had a Bible. He says, I'm so glad that today I was able to receive this Bible. And what a privilege it was to see that 43-year-old man come to place his faith in Christ. And I would almost venture to guess if I were to meet him, that Bible has been worn through because of his reading it. Could I ask you a question this morning? What is your view of the Bible? Do you hold it high? Is it something that you value in your life? It ought to be something that is treasured. It ought to be something that is looked at as the Word of God. But sadly today, we have a number of Christians that are coming, yes, even to churches like this one, that have varied views of the Bible. Some believe it is a great storybook that is full of wonderful suggestions that we should just consider for our lives. Some believe that the Bible can be trusted when it comes to the gospel, but yet some of the moral codes that are spoken of in the scripture really don't apply today because our culture is rapidly changing. There are some who believe that the Bible is fully God's word, while sadly others who name the name of Christ say, well, it's just partially God's word. Some say it lacks error and has no authority, while others, and I trust this would be you, believe it is fully accurate and fully authoritative. But may I say to you today, regardless of where you stand, the issue that comes out today is, Where does Jesus stand when it comes to the Bible? What is Jesus' view of the Bible? And I guarantee today that if you can come to a place and understand what Jesus' high view of the Scriptures is, then hopefully if your view is a low view, it'll change that view and allow you to value this book the way that you ought to. Let's pull apart these few verses and give you a few things that will help you in your view of the Scriptures as you see what Jesus' view is all about. First of all, according to verse number 17, I want you to notice Jesus' relationship to the Bible. Jesus' relationship to the Bible or the Old Testament. Now, let's get a clear understanding of the Scriptures that Jesus had in his day. Would you please note in verse number 17, when it says here and makes reference to the scripture, it talks about the law and the prophets. Now, do you realize that in the day Jesus lived, that you could summarize the Bible in this way, the law and the prophets? In fact, later on in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 40, to be specific, Jesus said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That is, all of the Old Testament you can hang and you can place right here on these two laws that he spoke about. 
There's another instance in the book of Luke where it adds here about the Psalms, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. But ultimately, when Jesus here is saying, I've come to fulfill this law and the prophets, he's referencing the Bible of his day. And what was that? It was what we know as the Old Testament. We didn't have in Jesus' day the writing of Paul, the writing of John or of Peter. Those would come later. But here it is, Jesus is referencing for our sake every bit of the Old Testament, what we consider the 39 books. Now, what is Jesus' relationship to this book, the Bible? Well, he tells his audience who are listening to this message that he's not come to destroy the Scriptures. Now, why would he even mention that? Well, you have to go back to the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and note here that this is a sermon that Jesus preached. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus begins this sermon, there is a group of verses that we call the Beatitudes. They are uh, things that are to be part of the citizens of that future kingdom of heaven. And Jesus begins to lay out those things for them to understand. And it almost be like the hearers of that day in listening to Jesus' message would begin to hear what he said about this future kingdom and they would compare those words of Jesus with what they knew of the Old Testament and they'd say to themselves, you know, it almost doesn't seem to match. It doesn't seem that everything fits together. It almost appears on the surface that Jesus is creating another method maybe of getting to heaven, another thing that we need to add to. And Jesus clears the air very quickly. He says, in fact, imagine here a preacher that could know your thoughts. It's not like anybody asks a question, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he stops in that message and he says, don't ever think that I've come to destroy the Old Testament. I've not come to destroy it. In fact, I have come to fulfill that. What does it mean to fulfill that? Well, the idea is that Jesus has come to complete the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, in essence, that he is the culmination of the Old Testament. Now, you've got to ask a question. In what way did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Well, let's stop and think about this for just a moment. Imagine if all we had today were the 39 books of the Old Testament. I would dare say that if you would read that and you were uh, uh, good at perusing through the scriptures and a good student, you would actually say in completing the book of Malachi, which is the last book, you'd have to say to yourself, you know, something seems incomplete. It seems like there's more to the story. How many have ever read a book which is the first part of a sequel? And, and there's another book that comes after it. When you read the first book and you get done, you're like, whoa, wait a minute, they got to finish a story. Well, that's, you get on to the sequel, you get on to the next book. And that's what Jesus is referencing here. He's talking about the fact that this Old Testament is completed because you read the Old Testament, it seems incomplete. But what does complete it or greater yet, 
Who completes it? It is Jesus Christ. Now, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? That's a great question. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in the fact that he fulfilled all the promises of a coming Messiah. You know, going all the way back to the very first book of the Old Testament, Genesis 3.15, there is a promise here of a coming Messiah. And as we unfold the pages of Scripture, we come to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then we skip down a few centuries, we come to David and Solomon, and guess what? All the way through, there's a promise of a Messiah coming, and guess who the fulfillment is? Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all that. And do you realize all of those prophecies in the Old Testament are pointing towards Jesus Christ are actually fulfilled in him? It is estimated that there are 60 prophecies of Jesus Christ that are given in the Old Testament. And do you realize that almost half of them, about 29 of them, are prophecies that have to do with his death on the cross? It's amazing. Every one of them are fulfilled in Jesus. So that's how Jesus completes the Old Testament. He also completes the Old Testament in the fact that he fulfills its types. Now, if you've not been a student of the Word of God, you may not understand what a type is in biblical knowledge, but here's what a type is. It is a figure or an example of something future. So, for instance, we have a lot of things in the Old Testament that we understand in its context, but they were given in such a way to be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, cite some examples. All right, I'll give you some. Some of you are familiar with the Day of Atonement. That is, this was a day set aside in the worship of Israel where the Israelites, every one of them by their family, would come to atone for their sins. And they were required to bring a lamb, now not just any lamb, but a lamb that the Bible says was perfect. It had, it had to have no blemish no bruises, no cuts. It had to be as perfect as possible. And do you realize that when one day when Jesus was beginning his ministry and was walking down, John the Baptist was doing what he did best and baptizing, and he saw Jesus Christ, and you know what he said? Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You know, in the Day of Atonement, do you realize that had to be done year after year after year after year? You know why? Because the lamb, a physical little animal, as beautiful as it would be, could never take away completely the sins. But Jesus Christ culminated. He was the type, and he was the one that was able to take away the sins of the world. Aren't you glad about that? Now think about something else as a type. You know, there was a day when the children of Israel would travel through the wilderness and God had prescribed for them after their complaining. I'm so glad I wasn't Moses going around with these complaining Israelites. But they were complaining about no food. And so God provided miraculously for them something that was called manna. It was sweet, had a kind of a honey taste to it, but it would come down from heaven and it would fall in the ground and they would collect that. Every day it was provided for them. 
You know what's amazing in John chapter 6? Jesus one day in a conversation with some people said, I am that bread of life. Jesus fulfilled the type. And you go through time after time and page after page and verse after verse, and you see all these things are a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder why Jesus said, search the scriptures for in them ye find me and have life. Oh, my. Can I say that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by perfectly obeying God's law? Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by paying the righteous demands of the law. So we see in verse 17 that Jesus had a beautiful relationship to the Scriptures because he fulfilled every bit of them. But secondly, I want you to notice this, is Jesus' respect for the Word of God. In this verse, Jesus has some very telling statements about the Scriptures. First of all, let's take the whole verse and let's see if you can grab something of what Jesus is giving to us about the Bible. Look at verse 18. Let me read this again. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, notice, till all be fulfilled. You know what Jesus is basically, without giving us a word, you know what Jesus is telling us about the Bible? It's eternal. It's eternal. It's everlasting. Now, we, we, we tend to get ourselves so accustomed to everything around us I'm sorry to say that those vehicles that you've purchased recently are going to rot. That house that you live in will someday be gone. You say, well, those are things that are built, and I understand those things are going to go. So we kind of get attached to the world that God created. But I want to tell you something in the book of Peter. God says that the elements of the earth and the heaven will be burned up someday. All of the sin and the impurities of this world will be burned up, and Jesus will create a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm here to remind you of something that you may get attached to all the things of this world, but it will be gone. But what will last? The Bible. Jesus is telling us, you ought to have a respect for this book because all the things around you that you see and you touch are going to be gone, but this will last forever. What else does Jesus tell us about this book? Well, he tells us it's, a th- it's eternal, but he also tells us that it is very authoritative. There are two words in this book that we almost kind of get puzzled at. And I want you to look at these words in verse number 18. He says, a jot or a tittle. And we say, I've never heard those words before except reading in the Bible. What is a jot or what is a tittle? Well, let me explain a jot for just a moment. And let me have you hold your place here. And I want you to go back to the book of Psalm chapter 119. Psalm chapter 119. And I want you to come to verse number 73. Now, while you're turning there, let me go ahead and explain what Psalm 119 is all about. Psalm 119 is one of the longest chapters in the Bible. 
It has 22 sections. Now, that wasn't done just randomly. Do you realize in the Hebrew alphabet, which the Bible in the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And so, therefore, every section is a section of a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And when we come to verse number 73, we come to one of those letters which actually happens to be the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, some of your Bibles may have this, some may not. But let me just see by a show of hands, how many have, it says Yod, it might be Y-O-D or Y-O-D-H, and there's a little uh, 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 mark that is there that looks like a Hebrew letter. Anybody have that? in? Oh, a number of you. All right, wonderful. All right. Now, if you just gaze at the other letters, the other sections, you'll see very quickly that the Yod is smaller than the other letters. In fact, it kind of looks like a little fancy upside-down L. That's what it looks like. And truly, it is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So what God is telling us here is not one, listen to this, not one letter will fail to be fulfilled. But he doesn't just talk letter, jot. He also says tittle. Now, what's that? That's like a little mark on a letter. Some of the letters were differentiated between one simple mark that was given on there. Our example in our American alphabet would be the difference between the capital letter E and the capital letter F. There's no symbol there at the bottom of the F that is taken away. We could say that's a tittle. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Listen to this. I want you to grab this because it is very important you don't miss this. Jesus said that the law would not pass until heaven and earth pass and that everything is accomplished that was taught in the Old Testament. Christ comments right here, demonstrate that he believed the literal inspiration of the scriptures. In other words, the exact words right down to the letters were chosen by God. Now you say, pastor, is it really that important? I mean, what examples do we have for just a moment? Let me take you to a place. I want you to turn to the book of Matthew right towards the end, chapter number 22. Go to Matthew 22, and I want you to notice here verse number 23. Now, I'm not going to begin reading, but I'm going to explain this here. Jesus is in a conversation with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a very liberal religious group. Oh, sure. They talked about the Bible. They taught the Bible, but they were very liberal, and there were certain things they didn't believe in. They didn't believe in miracles, They didn't believe in the afterlife, and therefore, they did not believe in the resurrection. So they come to Jesus with a what-if scenario. You ever had somebody ask you? I bet one of your children asked you, well, what if? 
I remember I was taught long ago, don't get caught up with the what ifs. But that's what they did with Jesus. And they basically came to him and they said, look, they concocted this whole story uh, about a woman's husband that dies and then she marries his brother, which was part of the Old Testament law. The brother dies, she marries another brother, he dies, she marries another, and so on until the seventh brother and he died, and then she did. And so the Sadducees look at verse number 28 and look at the question they asked Jesus. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. You know, I bet you they thought to themselves, we got them now. We got them. They basically had this idea that since they didn't believe in the resurrection, they could come up with this scenario, and this scenario was insurmountable. I mean, whose wife is she going to be? But look at how Jesus answers this. Look at this, verse 29. Well, actually, yes. He answered and said to them, I love this. He starts right off the bat. You err. You're wrong. You don't even know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, so he says, let me answer this aspect of the, of the marrying part. In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So I just took that aside right now. Now, he answers it a second way. Look at verse number 31. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, now look at verse 32. This is where I'm coming. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. How many would agree with that statement? Sure. But notice a simple word that Jesus gets on. I, what's the next word? Second word of the verse. Not I was. Jesus is not saying here, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now they're all dead and, and they're long gone. No, no. I am. And Jesus comes through and answers them very quickly and shows them that every word of God is important. The word am. Now, this almost brings some puzzling things in for Christians today. Because we come to a place and we go, all right, I, I, I get every part of the Bible is important. And, and, and in our minds, we say, I can safely land on the New Testament, but, but boy, I tell you what, the Old Testament, I, I'm having a hard time with this. And we have a lot of people out there who make snide remarks about us as Christians who go, oh, yeah, you believe the whole Bible. You know, you're the type of people who say, yeah, the Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery, but you're not keeping the Sabbath, the seventh day, and in fact, the Bible tells you if you don't even keep it, that you'd be executed, you'd be killed for not keeping it. So they bring in all these inconsistencies of the Bible. 
And it makes it almost difficult for us as Christians to say, well, look, look, I've been taught for a long time from, from the time I was little that the Bible is the Word of God, but I have a hard time figuring out all this stuff of the Old Testament. Let me help you this morning. I remember when I was in college, I was given some things that I wrote down, and I, you know, forgive me, I was a cocky kid in college, and I said, I'll never use this. Well, now I'm giving it to you because it's helped me every day of my ministry. Listen to this. I want you to note, first of all, if we're going to talk about the Old Testament, let's grab the Old Testament and understand what that's all about. The Old Testament is broken up into three different parts. That is the law of the Old Testament. We have the moral law, all right? We have number two, and we're going to just put these up on the screen and I'll explain them. We have the civil law, and then number three, we have the ceremonial law. Now, the moral law, this dealt with behavior, and there were penalties attached with the violation of this. This was something given to the Jews, but this also applies to us. Much of this here applies to us today. But then the civil law, what is this? This is the way they operated their government. It was their form of government, Israel. It applied to how they were going to live in the land that God promised them. But the ceremonial law, what was that? This is the part of the law that applied to their worship. It spoke about the feasts, the sacrificial system, but now, let me go ahead and throw this question out again. But how does that Old Testament law apply to me as a New Testament believer? I mean, I might be able to kind of figure out, all right, I don't do the feast anymore, and I don't do some of these ceremonies, and some of the civil laws don't apply. But how, why is it written? Why is it there? What's, what's to be uh, gotten from it? Well, let me give you here some principles that can guide you on these laws of the Old Testament. How does it apply to me today? Number one, I want you to grab this. And these are things that were given me years ago and have been a great help. Number one, if there is an Old Testament law that is repeated in the New Testament, then you better follow it. Most of the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, fit in this category. Thou shalt not commit adultery is repeated in the New Testament. Thou shalt not covet is repeated in the New Testament. So, very simple. If there is something that is stated in the Old Testament and it is repeated in the New, you better follow it. Number two, notice this. If there is an Old Testament law that is set aside in the New Testament, then it's not binding on you today. Now, this was seen, let me give an example, the law of circumcision. If you remember after Paul's first missionary journey, Paul is summoned to Jerusalem to meet with the elders there because Paul had just opened up the gospel to all of these Gentile believers. And up to this point, all that had been saved had been Jewish believers, and they had been accustomed to everything in the Old Testament, including circumcision. Circumcision had to be followed. And so as Paul had gotten in these Gentile cities and seen many non-Jewish people place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Jews were getting with the Gentiles and saying, look, you're not saved unless you're circumcised. 
Well, that caused for a big council to come together, Acts chapter 15, and guess what came through? God came through those leaders and basically said, circumcision is not to be included in salvation. Salvation is by faith. It is not of works. It is not of anything. And so therefore, circumcision was taken out. So I must say here to you today that if there is an Old Testament law that is set aside in the new, then it is not binding. Most of the ceremonial law falls under this. All the worship that was done, these feasts, we don't do these things anymore. Those things aren't repeated for us that we take care of the Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost and all those things. No, those are done away with. How about the dietary laws? Well, Peter was encouraged to take and eat things that were formerly forbidden. 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us that all things are open to us as long as we give thanks. So notice that. If there is an Old Testament law that's set aside in the New Testament, then it is not binding. But number three, I want you to notice this. If there is an Old Testament law not specifically mentioned in the New Testament, so there's an Old Testament law, but it's not mentioned in the, Old Te- in the New Testament, what do I do? Why is it there? Well, then I want you to follow this practice. Number one, determine the general principle behind the law. Figure out why did God give this law initially? Now, I must say that if you look at all the laws of the Old Testament, God gave every bit of those laws for the good of his people. We look at things like the dietary laws. You ever get confused reading in the book of Leviticus? And you're like, okay, wait a minute, chews the cud, uh, split hoof, uh, doesn't chew the cud, this or that. We, we get all confused and we're like, which animals can I eat? Can I eat? I mean, we think to ourselves, this is going to mess up my all-you-can-eat fish fry on, on Friday nights. I can't have shrimp, can't have shellfish or, or this. No, no, no. I want to tell you something. Those particular dietary laws are not for us today, but they were certain things that were given for their good Many of the social laws were designed to protect people's dignity. God had a great concern for women, the poor, slaves, widows, and others that were in a position where they could not protect themselves. The ceremonial laws, these were given as a way for the people to deal with their sin before God. So determine what the principle is. Number two, I want you to notice this. Discover if that principle is established in the New Testament. So once you've identified the principle behind the specific law, then we can go to the New Testament and see that same principle and see if it's given to us there. Let me give you one example that I think will help you. I may mention that most of the moral laws are repeated in the New Testament. There are 10 commandments that Moses wrote down on the table of stone. And is it not interesting when you read through the New Testament that nine of the 10 are all listed except one, keeping the Sabbath. Now, here's the principle behind this. God wanted a day that was specifically set aside where we could enjoy him, a day of rest, a day to enjoy God, a day to worship Him. 
And God had specifically made the Sabbath day, that seventh day, as a day that was a covenant between God and Israel. But God in the New Testament doesn't tell for us as new Christians the Sabbath. Otherwise, we would have had church yesterday and all of you would be a day late. But we're here today because there is a new principle that is given and our faith is all centered around Jesus Christ and his finished work on Calvary and his resurrection, not on the seventh day, but on the first day. So here it is. Discover that principle is established in the New Testament. And then thirdly, apply the principles to specific instances of life. Now, I wish I could go through some of the laws. I'm not going to take time. You could go walk through some of the laws and say, okay, look, those things don't really uh, readily apply to me today, but there is a principle behind why that was there, and I need to see how I can apply that today. You know what the bottom line is? Let me give you the bottom line of all this. The question we ought to ask is not, do I have to keep this commandment? Here's the question. How can I keep this commandment? When I look at it, not should I, do I have to, but how can I fulfill it because God has brought us to a higher place in this time of grace? Now, third thing I want you to see, and I'm done. Jesus' requirements concerning heaven, verse 20. I want you to notice the frank statement Jesus makes in this verse. He said, accept your righteousness will go beyond or exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And when he said that of the Pharisees, I almost guarantee there was a gasp. People are like, those guys are perfect. I mean, if anybody's going to make heaven, it's the Pharisees. They follow God to the letter of the law. How dare Jesus say that except my righteousness go beyond or is better than the Pharisees, then I'm not going to get to heaven. What did he mean by this? Well, do you realize the Pharisees' righteousness was all outward, external? Very interesting. Jesus showed here as you go through, and I don't have time to go through it in the remainder of chapter 5, but he gives some examples. He says, now look, he says here in verse number 21, he talks about anger. He says here, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. That was one of the Ten Commandments, right? And every Pharisee would say, we've never murdered anybody. But Jesus said, if you've had hatred in your heart for somebody, you've murdered them already. Then he jumps down to verse number 27 and talks about adultery. And I'll bet you all of a sudden now they're starting to cower a little bit. And Jesus said, now look, you've heard it said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. And every Pharisee said, oh yes, we've never committed this external sin. But Jesus said something that will smack every man between the eyes sitting in here if you've got breath. And that is, if you've looked on a woman to lust after her in your heart, Jesus said you've committed adultery. You know what Jesus is getting at? The heart. 
You know what Jesus also said about these Pharisees? Not only was it external, but for them, it was all self-serving. It was all about them. I, again, I'm not going to walk through, but you, you look at these verses here in verse number uh, 30. Um, uh, notice here, verse number 21, 27, 31, 33, and, and going through, he says every time, you've heard it been said, but I say unto you, you know, there was actually a point where even the Pharisees would add to the law. One of the, one of, one of the things Jesus said, you've heard it been said, that thou shalt love thy neighbor, uh, uh, but, uh, but you hate your enemy. You know, the Pharisees, I, I believe, really added that. Oh, we can look back in the book of Deuteronomy and see how we're to love our, our neighbor. Yes, that's there. But the Pharisees began to talk about, well, you love God. Yes, that's the law. But they added to it, you go ahead and hate your enemy. Everything was self-serving for them. Now, I'm here to tell you something. This righteousness of the Pharisees is what is called a self-righteousness. It is all external. It's all about what I do. Today, you may be here and you may say, preacher, I'm saved because I've come to church. I'm saved because I give money in the offering plate. But I want to remind you of something. It does not matter how religious you think you are. It doesn't matter how eloquently you pray in public or how many righteous acts you do out in the public square. Because none of that matters because the words of Paul in Romans 3.23 make it very clear. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. You say, Pastor, how do I have the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees? How do I get to heaven? Well, I'm going to tell you, work as much as you want. Try as hard as you will. Do as many deeds as you want to do. You will come short. That's why the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So how do I get to heaven? It's not my righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. It's his righteousness. He fulfilled every part of the law. He was perfect. He died on the cross. They buried him. That third day he rose again and he lives for me. He invites you to come to him. If you're here today and you're trying to be good to get your way to heaven. If I were to ask you, what will it take for you to get to heaven? I Probably some here today would answer like I've heard many, many times. Oh, I, I, I'm trying to get to heaven. I, I, I'm a good person. No goodness will ever do. Nothing. Your answer must be simple. When, it, when you're asked about how to get to heaven, you must say, I am placing my faith confidence, and all of my faith in Jesus Christ. Now today, could I ask you the question I asked you in the beginning? What's your view of the Bible? Is it authoritative in your life? <clears throat> you say, Pastor, I, I read it when I have time. I bring it to church and I listen 
But that's the extent of it for you. I want to tell you something. Jesus had a very high view of the Bible. Jesus saw it was eternal. Jesus saw that it was authoritative in our life. And therefore, it's something that we need. Christian, you need to not say, let me see how I can make the Bible fit in my life. You need to come before God in sincere honesty and say, I need to make my life fit the Bible. The Bible stands forever. But I want to ask you who are here today and are trusting in yourself to get to heaven, why would you trust you? You know, most people who trust themselves, who would say, well, I'm being a good person and and God will let me to heaven. Do you know everything is always conditioned on, I hope I'm going to heaven? My friend, I want to tell you something. You might have a little shaky confidence and a little hope on some things of this world, but I wouldn't have a hope so about going to heaven. God makes it abundantly clear that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you die, you're going to heaven. Preacher, you get to heaven because you preach a lot of sermons and you help people? No. I'll bet that there's a bunch of preachers out in this world who are professing believers, but they're going to die in a place called hell because they never they believed what they were doing would get them to heaven. I want you today to place your faith in Jesus Christ.